0: Hello and welcome to the political history of the United States, episode 2.27, The Glorious Revolution in the Dominion of New England. When we last left off, we were looking at England in the chaotic month of June 1688. In the universe of busy months for history, June of 1688 is about as busy of a month as you can get. So, Before we go forward today, a very quick reminder of what is going down there. In mid-June 1688, James II had a baby boy who he was planning to raise as a Catholic. This, of course, did nothing to relieve the fears of the Anglicans throughout England, who thought that James II was now planning on purging them and returning England to the Catholic Church. With a new presumptive Catholic heir in place, James II and his Catholic beliefs were no longer something that needed to be endured and then moved beyond. Now, there was a real pressing threat of a long-lasting Catholic dynasty. Well, James II must have been feeling pretty good to start the month. He would take hard knocks towards the end of June of 1688, when the seven Anglican bishops were acquitted of seditious behavior. James II had launched attacks at the seven bishops, by refusing the order to read his Declaration of Indulgence from their pulpits. The failure to convict these seven bishops brought serious questions into the mind of everybody in England regarding the actual power of the king and the amount of political control he actually had over the nation. Now, if this was not already a big enough problem for James II, he was also, unknowingly at this point, Dealing with the fact that another group of influential Englishmen had reached out to William of Orange, the husband of James II's daughter, Mary, and let them know that they would support him should he decide that he wanted to come over from the Netherlands and become the King of England. By the end of June 1688, despite James II being totally unaware by this point, the Glorious Revolution was getting ready to fall onto England. We are going to return to England and the plight of James II as we move along today. However, we are going to begin the episode by returning to New England. The Dominion of New England has reached its full size by the summer of 1688. However, as was the case in England, the Dominion would begin seeing major fractures open up in the coming months that would set the Dominion on a crash course with the Glorious Revolution. Perhaps no event in the history of colonial New England left deeper scars than did King Philip's War. We have discussed the reasons why this is the case. There were fears the war was a sign from God that the Puritans had sinned and needed to be punished. On a practical level, one of the most outwardly signs of the effects of King Philip's War had been the seriously depressed economy in New England in the years following that conflict. Psychologically, the war left deep wounds as well. The colonists were deeply worried about future Indian aggression. The last thing that any of them wanted was a sequel to that war. One of the more understated reasons for the development of the Dominion was to provide for better defense throughout New England. The colonies still existed in a dangerous world, a world where it was necessary to maintain careful defenses in order to protect the valuable trade. The threats against the English colonies came primarily from two sources during the later half of the 17th century, namely hostile Indian tribes as well as French aggressions. Oftentimes, these twin threats were actually a single threat as both the French and the English had adopted the practices of allying themselves with the local Indian tribes and then using those tribes to fight against their enemies. During the years of the Dominion of New England, the relationship between England and France was convoluted. In 1685, King Louis XIV of France issued the Edict of Fontainebleau, which formally repealed the Edict of Nantes. The Edict of Nantes was the 1598 Edict which provided for protection of French Calvinists. Louis XIV, by repealing the Edict of Nantes, moved France back in a decidedly more Catholic direction. It therefore isn't surprising that Louis XIV would be interested in helping promote Catholicism throughout Europe if not completely snuffing out Protestantism altogether. This made Louis XIV and James II natural allies. While this alliance would temporarily lead to continental peace, the parties involved declined to extend that peace into the colonies. This means that back in North America, relations between the French and the English remained tension-filled, bordering on hostile, despite the otherwise peaceful relationship back in Europe. Just to make things slightly more complicated, at the end of the 17th century, we have to also consider another group, chiefly the Iroquois Empire. Both the English and the French had a great deal to gain by aligning themselves with the Iroquois. For the French, an English alliance with the Iroquois may well mean the collapse of the French fur trade. The English had superior numbers in North America, and an alliance between the English and the Iroquois meant that the English could force the French out of North America entirely. This isn't some far-flung fear either for the French. Indeed, the English were encouraging Iroquois attacks on the French and their Indian allies. The French, trying to get ahead of the potential Iroquois aggression, struck at the English and their Iroquois allies in New York in 1685. For New York and their governor Thomas Donegan, this was a serious situation not only because there was a loss of life, but rather the interruption that it meant for the fur trade. There were some half-hearted attempts back in Europe to get control over the situation. However, the Treaty of American Neutrality largely ignored the conditions on the ground. More specifically, despite there being a Treaty of Neutrality between England and France, it completely ignored the fact that there was a third party in the matter, the Iroquois Nation. The Iroquois, who were at this point allied with the English, continued to act aggressively. They built forts on French territories up near Niagara, and furthermore, the Iroquois attacked the French-allied Senecas. This back-and-forth warfare and harassment between the Iroquois and the French-allied tribes was a headache for Donegan. The problem was that the French and their allies, should they attack, could potentially overrun the English and capture New York. This was not exactly an empty fear for Donegan. Donegan was aware that in early 1687 the French moved approximately 3,000 troops into Canada. This move by France concerned James II enough that he ordered Andros to provide assistance should Donegan request the help. James II also made sure to note that the cost of raising the militia would be paid out of tax money, leaving Andros with the unfortunate move of having to increase an already heavy tax burden on the New Englanders for the defense of another colony. Realizing that he was in a precarious position with his frontiers in New York, Donegan would make his ultimately personally regrettable decision to suggest that New York should join the Dominion of New England. The Dominion would offer protection that Donegan desperately needed, though he was not aware that the decision would mean that he would find himself purged from the colonial leadership. When New York joined the Dominion, Edmund Andros found himself with yet another headache that he was going to have to deal with. About the only shining light here for Andros is that this is not a totally new situation for him. While he was the governor of New York, Andros had been largely responsible for the negotiations that would align the Iroquois and the English in the first place. Despite the tensions, neither James II nor Louis XIV really wanted to endanger their treaties by fighting a war in America. The two monarchs agreed to negotiate the dispute. This at least calmed the situation momentarily for the most part. The one place where things did not calm down was in Maine, where the Abenaki tribe launched an attack against the English, possibly at the urging of the French, in early 1688. The attack in Maine was particularly devastating, not because of the damage it brought or for the loss of life, but rather because it exposed those psychological scars of King Philip's war. Maine wasn't the New York frontier. It was New England, and that was a point missed on nobody. Edmund Andros recognized that the attack in Maine was likely motivated by English encroachment on Indian lands. Deciding that he did not want to make any friends, Andros blamed the attack on the harsh treatment at the hands of the English, as well as their constant encroachment onto tribal lands. Regardless of whether or not Andros was correct in his assessment, this was not something that any of the New England colonists wanted to hear, especially at that very moment. They were angry, they were scared, and they saw their leader, Edmund Andros, pointing the finger directly back at them. For Andros, pragmatically, he did not want to get drawn into an open conflict. He always was going to favor diplomacy in this situation, The New England colonists, however, wore their trauma on their sleeves and favored the complete annihilation of the Abenakis. The New England colonists were appalled at Andros for his weak position on the Indians. Andros would work out an uneasy peace that would have serious repercussions shortly down the road. The Abenakis felt that they were taken advantage of during the negotiation. The Massachusetts colonists are going to blame what is about to come on the weak response by Andros. However, realistically, the action that kicks off further conflict with the Abenaki is going to be caused by settlers in Maine violating the tenuous peace treaty, and not by anything that Andros himself did. Following his de-escalation and peace efforts in Maine, Andros decided in late July of 1688 to travel to New York having officially become the governor of New York and the Jerseys on July 23rd of that year. Andros would reach New York in the middle of August. Being that it was, you know, 1688, information traveled a whole lot slower than it does now. So it was during those August days, when Andros was in New York, that news from the busy June 1688 began to arrive in the colonies. Upon receiving word of the birth of a new prince, Andrus went through the necessary motions, firing cannons and celebrating the birth of a new heir. Whether he fully understood the reaction back in England is unknown, and at the time Andrus was still dealing with problems with the native tribes. Andrus was doing everything he could to avoid a full-fledged frontier war along the New York borders. Meeting with members of the Iroquois nation in Albany during the summer of 1688, they reassured Andros that they remained loyal to him and loyal to the English. It was while in Albany, trying to secure the New York borders, that Andros received word that 11 Indians, Indians that were allies of the French, had attacked and killed five Massachusetts colonists near Springfield and another six near Northfield. Northfield is to the north of Springfield, near the modern-day border between Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Both towns were located in the heart of the area most affected by King Philip's War. If you are looking at a map, you will see that Hadley lies right in the middle of the two towns. And if you'll recall, we spent a whole lot of time during our King Philip's War episodes right in that very area. To say that these attacks struck a chord with the New England colonists would be an understatement. This was their worst fears realized. And regardless of how true it was, they were lightning fast to blame Andros for the unfolding events. While rushing back to Boston, Andros learned that there had been a third attack along the Kennebec River in Maine. The attack in Maine helped convince the New England colonists that it had been the Maine Indians, the Abenaki, the ones that they wanted to annihilate, that was responsible for the attack. Their anger quickly shifted to Andros, who had been responsible for the peace agreement that so many in Massachusetts loathed. New Englanders, not able to wait for Andros to return, started taking dramatic actions. These ranged from fortifying sites on the outskirts of Boston to the more dramatic decisions. Up near Portland, Maine, an English militia commander, a Captain Blackman, took 21 Indian prisoners. These men, many of whom were elderly, were almost certainly not those responsible for the attacks in Springfield or Northfield. Though, for the New England colonists, that did not really matter much in the moment. Predictably, the Maine Indians were not thrilled that the English were capturing them and began harassing English settlements and capturing English settlers to hold as hostages. Andros, struggling to regain control over a situation that was rapidly spiraling out of control, ordered that the captured Indians be immediately released. Andros was now stuck in an impossible situation. On the one hand, he was struggling to prevent a repeat to King Philip's War, while at the same time having to deal with New England colonists who, in their efforts to avoid a sequel to King Philip's War, acted so hyper-aggressively as to help ensure that the war that they so wanted to avoid was going to become a reality. As Andros put together a military force to head into Maine to regain the peace, The situation back in Massachusetts was becoming increasingly unstable. Andros, never a popular figure in New England, had, during the spring of 1688, banned public meetings. Likely hoping that this would cut down on the rabble in the colony, the abolition of public meetings was another shot directly at the liberty of the Puritans in New England. From the time that the colony was founded, these meetings were seen as an absolute right. As the forum where grievances could be publicly aired, they acted as a check on the increasingly arbitrary Andros. This may very well help explain why Andros asked that Fitz Winthrop take command of the militia. Winthrop, seeing the tides changing against Andros, replied by saying, Cough, cough, I'm sick. Andros, probably pretty annoyed by this point, went ahead and took up command himself. Andros, Edward Randolph and the Reverend Robert Ratcliffe took approximately 700 men north to Maine to deal with and contain the growing Indian violence. Far more importantly than anything that is going to happen in Maine, the real marquee moment here is that Andrus and those who were still actually loyal to him, specifically Randolph and Ratcliffe, were suddenly a few hundred miles away in Maine. All of this is happening at the same time that news had begun to pour into the colonies about the internal strife that was beginning to grip England. We are going to spend some time in our next episode discussing when revolutionary machinations began to seize Boston. However, it is undeniable that moving into the fall of 1688, the colonists were more than happy not to have Edmund Andros in town. What we do know, however, is that by the time we reached the fall of 1688, Andros and his retinue existed on something of an island. There is no denying his power within the colony. Andros had the absolute backing of King James II. And thus far, at least, he had wielded that power effectively. However, despite his still uncontested control over the colony, Edmund Andros had done a lot of things that had alienated a vast majority of the colonists. Sure, there were plenty of moderates in pre-Dominion Massachusetts that were rooting for the destruction of Puritan hegemony. They felt that the faction had gained too much power and they wanted to see the politics of the colony opened up. The moderate merchant class believed that the end of the Puritan stranglehold would mean better opportunities. However, the policies that Andros brought with him had ultimately pushed everybody, even those that were on his council, away from him. Changes to the justice system, the challenges to land rights, higher taxes across the board, strict enforcement of the Navigation Act, the closing of the ports, banning public meetings, and the sense of england encroachment had touched every single colonist in such a way to make them dislike Andros. Realistically, though, at this moment in time, Andros has the backing of the king and the colonists are in a position where there is very little that they can do to resist. While Andros was temporarily out of their hair during the fall of 1688, the reprieve must have appeared to be just that, nothing more than temporary. Meanwhile, back in England, James II was suddenly faced with a rapidly worsening crisis, and the events over the summer and fall of 1688 began to directly challenge his reign. Politically weakened from the loss of the case against the seven bishops back in June, opponents smelled blood in the water. This is even more pronounced because recall that right around the same time that the seven bishops were acquitted, another group of seven inquired to William of Orange what his thoughts were on taking the job of King of England. Right as tensions were beginning to mount in England, Increase Mather would arrive after having left the colony some time before. By July of 1688, Increase Mather was in England and had managed to get a meeting with James, where he informed him of the hardships under Edmund Andros. Mather played his cards carefully here. While he may have wished for a return to the pre-Dominion world, that would have seemed completely out of the cards. Rather, Mather focused on a couple of key issues. At the top of the petition that he would submit to the king that July, was a request that liberty of conscience be obeyed in the Dominion. This is something that, at least at a surface level, seems to be a reasonable request from a king who was currently busy getting his own political standing to ensure that such liberty existed in England. One would at least want to believe that James II had to be receptive to such a request. Mather did also request that the land rights of the colony be protected, as the New England colonists were not huge fans of Andros' land policies. Beyond that, and much to the chagrin of Mather, whose original version was much further reaching the only other thing that Mather officially requested was a charter for Harvard. Mather likely wanted to protect Harvard from Anglican interference and ensure that it would remain a hub of Puritan values. By the end of summer 1688, James II does appear to have begun to understand how much danger he was actually in. By this point, William of Orange was very clearly preparing an invasion. William was facing multiple problems of his own, which helped deal with any hesitation that he may have had. The Dutch were in a tense position with France come the summer of 1688. War was looking increasingly likely between the two countries. We know that France and England had an alliance at this time, so a war with France was going to mean a war with England. Should William decide that invading England was the move to make, he could potentially cut off an important French ally in something of a preemptive strike. Beyond that, by the fall of 1688, it was clear to William that this wasn't just a few guys who did not like James. William had support, and an invasion had a legitimate chance of success. James II, now understanding the gravity of the situation and knowing that his throne was in real jeopardy, sought out help from the religious nonconformists. This did mean that Increase Mather had an amount of success in getting the king to acquiesce to his requests, though James II had absolutely no intention of re-establishing the colonial charter. Mather was a nonconformist, and at the moment, those were who James really needed. More straight-cut, Anglicans were becoming increasingly hostile and more supportive of an outright invasion by William of Orange. William, after some delay, would launch his invasion and landed on the English coast on November 5th, 1688. William brought along with him an army of roughly 15,000 men and was looking to face off against James II's army of just under 20,000. On the surface, every advantage here on paper is going to appear to go to James II. He has an army that is larger. While not massively outnumbering their opponents, it is still right around 25% more than what William was landing with. More than that, the key word that comes up here is landing. William is having to launch an amphibious invasion of England, whereas James II needs to simply repel that invasion. It is typically a lot easier to be the guy needing to repel the invasion than to be the guy doing the invading. So, when William arrives, he is meeting an army that is both larger and has the advantageous position. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is where James II misjudged absolutely everything. James II had appointed a good number of Catholic officers in the army, men that would unquestionably remain loyal. However, Despite these efforts, the army was still an overwhelming majority Anglican. This created a very serious problem for James II. While James had replaced many of the officers with Catholics, there were still a whole lot of Anglican officers in the army. Put another way, if James favored Catholics and was able to fend off this attack from William, would James II ultimately take that as a sign that he should purge out the remaining Anglican officers? If James was truly wanting to return England to a Catholic church and re-establish an English Catholic dynasty, how safe were his Anglican officers? What about their families moving into the future? Were they all looking at a new world where they were going to be fighting for the same king who was going to end up eventually purging them out of the government and the army? James II was therefore left with an officer corps in his very own army that was largely distrustful of their king and worried what victory would actually mean for them. As James II was preparing his defense, the wheels began to come off. The most powerful men in England, rather than standing with their king, began defecting over to William. Among those who defected was James's daughter Anne, meaning that now both of his own children had deserted him. As the Lords of England began moving to William's side, James watched his army shrink without even mustering a fight. It is interesting to note that while well, the desertions did thin out James's army, it did not do so to an amount that would have likely proved fatal. It isn't as though William suddenly ended up with a massive numerical advantage, as the majority of the officer corps did in fact remain loyal. The problem is that the desertions completely drained James of the will to fight. James II... The same man who had spent years fighting through the exclusion crisis and weathering storm after storm because of his religion had largely become a broken man by this point. James II was in desperate need of regrouping. It is here that he is about to make his greatest mistake of the entire series of events that was unraveling around him. This is the mistake that would prove to be the fatal blow to his reign. On December 10th, 1688, James II sent his wife Mary and son out of the country to France. On December 12th, James II decided that he too needed to get out of London, likely trying to avoid the same fate as his father. James made plans to go across the Channel and join with his family in France. On his way out of town, James did take the almost completely symbolic gesture of tossing the Great Seal of England into the Thames, as it was necessary to call a parliament. James did not end up making it to France. He was captured well on board the ship set to cross the Channel and was promptly returned to London on December 17th. James actually got a somewhat warm reception upon his return, though anything resembling a comeback story from here is just not in the cards. Even after being returned to Whitehall and put nominally back in control, James never showed any real inclination that he felt like it was worth a fight. After being told that the Dutch were approaching, James failed to take any measured resistance, and more or less accepted his fate. James II was informed in the very early morning hours of December 18th by Dutch soldiers that it was now actually time for him to leave London. The king was transported to Rochester and he was put under guard. William left James under a rather weak guard as William desperately wanted the now former king to escape. James had not put up a fight, and executing the king was going to be a terribly unpopular move by William, who was going to have to deal with claims of his being a usurper. Unsurprisingly, James II did not really have much in the way of an objection to escaping, and William's guard was not going to do anything in the way of stopping him, other than maybe providing him with directions to the docks. Either way, James fled from his captivity on Christmas Day 1688 and arrived on the French coast shortly thereafter. During the Convention Parliament, on January 22, 1689, it was decided that when James II had fled England and threw his great seal into the Thames, it was a clear sign that he was abdicating his throne. Though such official declarations that James II had abdicated were by this point just making official what everybody, James II included, already knew to be true. The Convention Parliament then named William of Orange as the new King William III, to rule jointly with his wife, Queen Mary. We are going to talk about the far-reaching effects of the Glorious Revolution more as we move along through the end of the season and the beginning of the next. However, for the remainder of this season, I want to place the primary focus on the immediate effects in North America of James II losing his job. The events taking place in London and the Dominion are occurring largely in tandem with each other. The events in England were directly driving the decisions of those back in the Dominion of New England, though we are always on a roughly three-month delay as it takes time for news of those events to make it across the Atlantic. When we last left Edmund Andros earlier in this episode he had made his way up to Maine to deal with the hostile tribes in an attempt to prevent a second coming of King Philip's war. The most critical thing about Andros having to go to Maine has nothing to do with his success against those tribes that he was fighting, but rather that the timing meant that as news of the unprecedented events in England came into the colonies, Andros was not in Massachusetts to deal with the information. While up in Maine, news from England began to make its way back into the North American colonies. The first sign that something was seriously wrong came during the winter of 1688 in a letter from James II to his colonial governors dated October 16, 1688. So, written about 3 weeks before the landing of William. The letter contained a warning of a potential Dutch invasion and ordered everybody to take necessary precautions in case of an attack. One has to believe that for Edmund Andros, the very first thing to pop into his head here had to be New York. You know, the former Dutch colony of New York, the former Dutch colony that, not that long ago, the English had captured, when the letter arrived to Andros, it was already January of 1689. Immediately taking precautions, Andros did send a warning back to the south, saying that there was an immediate need to prepare for a possible Dutch invasion. In regards to his actual command in Maine, it is something of a mixed bag. Overall, the picture is that Andros really wasn't that bad of a military leader. However, as with any army, nobody really enjoyed the cold Maine winters and the desertion rate remained a serious problem throughout that entire season. Those who were deserting were more than happy to place the blame on the evil Edmund Andros rather than themselves. Problematically for Andros, There were plenty of people at this point in New England that were going to believe anything you said regarding Andros as long as it was bad. It was during March of 1689 that Edmund Andros got word of just how serious things had become in England. Though no official news had yet reached the colonies, rumors had reached him that James II had been overthrown. Andros, who was so tightly connected to James II, immediately realized how serious these rumors were. His own legitimacy was directly related to the power of James II. Had James II fallen, Andros himself could be in very real danger of having his own ability to govern the colonies called into question. Though at this point he was operating on just rumors. Andros decided that it was a good time to leave 200 men up in Maine and hightail it back to Boston to get control over the rumor mill. Next time, we will see Edmund Andros return to Boston as news of the events in England begin to pour into the colony. Already an unpopular figure, Andros will find himself in a fight to maintain the dominion of New England as events begin to rapidly spin out of control. With that, I will see you all back here in two weeks' time, where we will begin discussing the 1689 Boston Riots. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks, that you are staying healthy and that you are staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we watch Edmund Andros desperately attempt to cling to power.